Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guests today are Greer Tesler and Kara Kaufman, founders of Simple Food Ventures. Simple Food Ventures is an early stage venture capital firm that invests in the future of healthy foods and products. So we're talking about the wonderful world of CPG on this episode. We discuss why they wanted to invest in Better For You, distinguishing what's better for the planet versus better for you, and their unique investment strategy and what makes a product work on shelf in retail. Without further ado, here they are. Greer and Kara, thank you so much, both of you, for joining me today. How are you? We're good. Yeah, I'm excited to be on here to be doing this. Freezing in New York right now, but otherwise, no complaints. <laughs> so, both of you, what was your initial attraction to the whole food and beverage industry? Why did you both want to enter it, and what was your entry point? Absolutely. So, I started it from a consumer perspective. I am. Um, Started having food allergies at around 17, 18. I used to bring my own pasta to restaurants, which would definitely be illegal now. They used to boil water for me and the whole bit. Uh, There's one type of bread in Whole Foods that I remember. There really wasn't anything. So I came at it from needing to shift how I was eating. I had a gluten allergy and dairy intolerances. At one point, I was on a low FODMAP diet. I mean, you name it, I've tried it. And so with all of these changing dietary needs and restrictions came my self-education, understanding how to read the labels on packages, understanding that just because something was deemed gluten-free or better for you didn't necessarily mean that it was. And so really diving deeper into what that was, familiarizing myself with the brands and understanding how I wanted to eat, which has shaped my eating and really my interest in all of that for the last 15, 20 years. Yeah. And I mean, both of us have lived a better for you lifestyle. You know, I didn't have severe a severe food allergies as Kara, but I've always kind of tried to stay into the more preservative free space and really came into this after I'd worked closely in grocery more from a consultative perspective for the last 11 years of my career. And I was leaving my job, wanted to pursue some investing. I started working for a fund um, as a venture partner for about six months and they were doing, it was like a part fun, part brand accelerator working with CPG products. Saw, got more exposure into that space and realized that I could actually go off and do it on my own. And in doing so, I was trying to think of the perfect partner and Kara was that perfect partner. So we've been doing this and brought in my relationships with grocery as a big value add and differentiator for our fund. I think also what we were seeing too is that 
the access to the Better For You space, our fund, our initial and still our mission is to just create more access to healthy foods and products. And we're doing that by driving scale. So making sure that creating scale, bringing price points down and having those products be available at every neighborhood grocery store versus, you know, being targeted more towards a Whole Foods or an Erewhon type shopper. And to just expand on that a little bit, I mean, I've personally seen these aisles go from one half a section in a freezer to aisles and aisles of these better for you products sitting side by side, the Jiffies and, uh, you know, the Oreos of the world with competing better for you brands. And for us, that's really exciting. But the mission is, is that we have to, it has to be accessible across the board, both in terms of price and where you can find those products. And that's what we're doing. Got it. So part of the opportunity that you're seeing is a shift from better for you organic Products um, not only in you know kind of spe- specialty retailers or, or high end retailers, but also seeing this really come down the chain into like the actual conventional grocery. Well, what, what's happened with COVID is consumer behavior shifted. Where everybody knows you don't want to have to go to multiple stores to risk getting COVID from multiple different places. So craving that one stop shop experience and having health be a big you know central priority for a lot of people. Grocers are realizing that they can't just, there can't just be the Whole Foods and then you get your conventional items at a Target or an Albertson Safeway. Grocers like, you know, Kroger and Albertson Safeway need to be able to integrate natural, organic, and conventional onto their shelves. And so consumers are able to go to one store to get everything they're looking for. And retailers are now able to actually meet all of their consumer needs and demands versus before where it was like you had to go to multiple different places. And then the last part, too, is that with this new shopper who is going to be the Gen Z shopper, they care about what's in the product. They also care about what that product is doing to the environment. And so the way that we invest is looking for products that have sustainability as a huge aspect to either the ingredient or packaging, but also that it's clean and it's good for the body. It's functional in some aspect. So with this being said, and this is kind of going down a rabbit hole pretty early, but what is when you think about the future of the grocery store? Right. And it going from maybe not as specialized, um, as you say, in a specific bucket to now maybe more broad. I mean, how are you thinking about it as investors? I mean, obviously, we're going to cover like the brand side too, of course, because that's what you're paying attention to. But when you think about distribution in the grocery store, what do you think about that the grocery store is going to look like in the next like five, 10 years? I mean, we're already seeing a massive shift if you think about it. Like the fact that. Oreos and Corona and Guinness are like coming out with these gluten-free items. These mass retail, these mass market companies are shifting towards this better for you space. And so if the big guys are doing it, sometimes they're able to invest in the R&D to do it. It's a lot easier to just acquire the brands that have already done it successfully. So there's going to be a lot more integrations, but we're seeing acquisition, a lot more platforms at play instead of just the big guys taking, taking stand here. And also, actually, what's been interesting in our conversations with grocers in this space is that even though you'll see a shelf consumed mostly by the larger players, you know, the Cokes, the Pepsis, the Mondelezes of the world, maybe 75% of the shelf controlled by that, the 15% is made up by maybe 30 other brands. So these smaller players are really popping up and trying to, to grow a presence there. It's difficult because shelving fees are really, really expensive and the grocery beast can be pretty intimidating, which is typically why these healthy brands wait a little while before they actually go down that path. But 
for brands to really survive, they need the right connections and they need a, a true differentiator. And that's really like what we look for. But the other thing that you'll see on the shelves now too is in addition to being gluten-free or organic or calorie, like low calorie, whatever it is, you're also going to have the carbon footprint of the brands lo- labeled on the boxes because grocers are looking at those brands as, as an important aspect to what they're offering their customers. The labels are just the table stakes at this point. It's now what else can you do to further differentiate? That's really, really fascinating. I also wanted just to back up a little bit as well and just talk about a little bit how Simple Food Ventures came together. I know, Greer, when you were thinking about starting to fund, you mentioned earlier how uh, Kara was the perfect partner in order to start a fund with. And I would love to kind of understand, you know, how you two, you know, first of all, know each other, how you both came together and why you also wanted to do start a fund with a partner as opposed to starting each your own funds. Our friendship goes back almost 20 years. We met in high school and probably shouldn't be saying this, but we were in a slower math class, which is interesting because that's now what we do all day long and really bonded over that. But we actually did a fundraiser when we were in high school for a camp in Maine that catered to kids with terminal illness and their families. We had both been affected by disease in different ways. And so it was our first attempt and successful attempt at really making a difference in the world. So we did that for three consecutive years. We raised money for the scholarship fund. We were actually able to send 60 families to this camp for free of charge, which was amazing. And so not only were we working on this friendship, but at an early age realized that there was a business side to our dynamic and you know, how like career take it from there. That's all completely accurate. I think the reason why Simple Food Ventures came to be is actually the name was derived from Alice Waters talking about simple food. And it's just really like the natural, no additive, simple ingredients part of food that we love. And when I was starting this, there was $2 million that I had the opportunity to invest And I knew that I couldn't do it alone because I'm a people person and I'm the type of person that needs to talk something through versus write it out in order to really hammer out ideas and and think through my thoughts. And having a partner to go about doing that with is exactly what I needed to do to succeed. So bringing Kara in, somebody who really understands the space, experiences exactly the issues that a lot of our companies are trying to overcome, um, I knew that it would be the right fit for us. And it's interesting, Greer and I come at things, we usually land on pretty similar... I'm good cop and she's bad cop. <laughs> that is what happens. But we, you know, we play to each other's strengths. I mean, Greer really is, she meets a founder and she falls head over heels. And I'm like picking out like, well, what about this and this and this and this and this? And she's like, well, let's overlook this. And so really being able to tap into the other one's both successes and shortcomings, I think, is what makes us successful together. We really do balance each other out and are able to see a holistic picture when we bring everything together. Talk to me a little bit about like your due diligence process and how you examine, evaluate founders and um, and overall like make investment decisions. Our process is pretty similar to a lot of other funds, but what makes us special is that we actually pressure test our investments before we make them. The way it works is that we get introduced to a company either through other founders, maybe we see them out in the market and are interested, or through other investors. 
we have an initial conversation. We love to hear brand stories. I think that that's really what makes a brand special is what, how they came to be and why. And after that conversation, if we're interested, we move forward, we try samples, and then we dive into our financial diligence. After that, which is typically around three weeks, we actually make an introduction to a retail partner that we have that I've worked closely with for most of my career. And we introduce them to the national category director for whichever the category is, see how that meeting goes, talk, uh, set up the introduction, understand from the category director's perspective if they see potential grocery life for the company. And then if they do, we move forward with an investment and also starting to facilitate a pilot launch in one of the divisions or nationally, depending on the opportunity. And then in addition to that, we actually build in incentive equity into all of our deals. So we write a check, but then in addition to the check, we get an additional percentage of equity for opening up a certain number of doors for, for our companies and helping to advise them in their growth strategy along the way through grocery. So we have relationships with a bunch of strategic retailers and we really bring that to the table. And the brand looks at it from a perspective of even before we invest, we make this huge introduction that is very hard for them to get in the first place. And the retailers look at it as we're giving them the opportunity to be first to market with these brands. And we look at it as we're actually getting like a stamp of approval on somebody that's going to distribute before we actually make an investment. Are you mostly looking at companies that are not already in retail that only have a online presence or only sales online? It varies because of you know where we invest, which is pre-seed all the way to series A. We are looking at brands that have everything and nothing in between. So some of them can start as D to C, some of them, it's true. Some of them are pre-launch, some of them are D to C, some of them are, you know, in specialty markets and some of them might be in, you know, the Wegmans of the world, but not, and they might, where they might have national or um, East Coast distribution at Whole Foods, but they might not have national distribution with Walmart or Target or, and they have goals of getting to those levels. The one thing that we definitely make sure is it has to have a mass, these brands have to have mass market appeal. We're very careful to like, you know, we've invested in two brands that are, um, were pre-launch and pre-revenue when we invested in them. So with the deal structure that we have with them, like getting them into our real retail partner right now doesn't actually make sense because they're just launching. But when they're ready, we're that partner for them to really help them prime their brand to be successful going into those conversations. Well, then how do you then think about pressure testing or can you not pressure test when you actually do have a brand that is pre-launch? What then do you kind of also think about that you utilize um, to make a decision about whether to invest or not? It really comes down to two things. When it's that early stage, it's the founder understanding the roadmap and then it's about filling I don't want to say white space because there's a lot that's already been fulfilled, but what are they doing that's differentiated? So, and what do they see and how do they see the brand evolving over time? So if they're able to answer those questions, we like who they are, we want to work closely with them and we, we see a need for products like that in the market, that's what, that's what sends us into investing with them. I had on John Sebastiani, who is the founder of Crave Jerky and also Sonoma Brands, and he was saying how what can be tough is when you have a brand that is a DNVB, it's online, and then they want to go into retail, that they're not priced really accordingly to to retail. When you're dealing with, especially at like 
pre-launch brands, right? Which maybe you don't quite know what the pricing will be. How do you think about these two things since in terms of your initial added value, it's retail partners? When we're talking about pre-launch, though, it's not pre-concept. So it's a brand that either has the product, but they just haven't launched yet, or they have a product and a following, but they haven't necessarily launched yet. We know what retail what margins retailers need their brands to hit so we can help them work backwards from that. We also know the price point ranges that a retailer, our retail partner specifically, would pick up a brand or not pick up a brand. And so we can help kind of position them appropriately depending on whatever those parameters are. And so that it's really important to us too that we still pressure test the concept with our retail partners even though the brand is pre-launched. Because in the long run, our goal is to get that brand into the store. There's a way to get it to lowering the cost. And so that's part of the conversation when we're evaluating these products. Is it about you know the packaging that they're currently in? Is it about the ingredients that they're currently in? Will those be swapped out for less expensive ingredients, but still maintaining the better for you profile? All of that comes into conversation as we're looking at the mass play and the, the need to lower the price. I think consumers certainly, there's been a ton of consumer education around better for you foods for a consumer. I think we're well on the way in kind of the better for you food movement. But where do you think we're at in terms of the better for you when it comes to the environment on packaging in terms of like consumer education? Oh, we are so early in the conversation, too early, I think. I, there's so, I think there's a long way that we have to go. Our brands are doing it, our brands, but some of them are, you know, five years old. So think about it in terms of, so maybe it's not so, so, so new, but compared to, I've been eating gluten-free for almost 20 years. So we're looking at a, almost, I would say a 15 year gap at yeah. least. But you even think about it of like the packages that get, the amount of packages that Kara and I get every single week because of the fact that we have to try all the samples that we invest in. So I've seen that evolve where, you know, before sometimes it'd be styrofoam in it. Now it's this foam, it's this styrofoam material that is like dissolves in the water and creates like a foam to it. And then it's just gone. And like the innovation that is coming with that, I mean, we're really interested in also finding brands that have, that are taking a new take on plastic bags in grocery stores or paper bags in grocery stores or the bags that you're using to put your grapes in at stores. Like brands that are going to that next level and that's really where the future is. I mean, the future of food in the aspect of it affecting sustainability is obviously supply chain when it comes to the actual ingredients, but also the packaging. No, it makes sense. I mean, I'm always kind of curious, and I think it's great that brands have been experimenting and doing a lot of packaging. I think that once you see a consumer pull for sustainable packaging or new forms of packaging, then then you'll start to see maybe a much greater shift there. No, that's like that's really, really fascinating. We also talk a lot about better for you, right? And what's actually better for you. And I feel like there's almost like not two camps, but um, there's better for the planet and better for you. And you know, when you had like, for example, um, alternative proteins like uh, Impossible and Beyond Meat, who 
it's better for the planet. It's a plant-based protein, but the jury's kind of still out or, or there's been kind of reports of, is it actually better for you, right? This kind of question is being raised. As investors, since how do you think about better for you? Does it kind of have to check those two boxes of better for the planet and better for you? Or can it get away with one of the two boxes? And then as a macro, maybe on like a macro lens too, this is kind of a two-part question. On the macro level as well, where do you think like better for you is is headed. I think that it's for us, it starts with, is it better for the body? Which leads to, is it better for the environment? If we're not our healthiest selves, putting our best foot forward, then we're not able to do that for the rest, for everything else. I think that's where it starts. So that's really what we look at in those ingredients. And we've had that conversation about impossible and beyond. We're invested in a meatless uh, chicken nugget company as well and had that conversation and they're made in a lab and we love it. So we understand that. I think that better for you has almost kind of become a buzzword at this point. Like there's, so what we mean with better for you is that there's no additives, preservatives, or chemicals in the food that we're, that you're eating. It, it's all natural in some, maybe it's natural where it's produced in a lab now, but it's not like, you know, there's no corn syrup in it or, or We're not whatever. looking, right. There's no like dextrose and, you know, red dye number seven or yeah, whatever it is. It's a pea protein isolate instead of, you know, whatever it might be. But the macro trend that I think we're seeing now is that it's going to be table stakes. If you look at all of these mass conglomerate brands that were producing Frito, like Frito-Lay, and, you know, if you look at just everything, Doritos, like anything out there, there's now going to be an option that is going to be a plant-based Doritos or like a gluten-free Doritos that is also plant-based that has no additives to it. Like it's going to be the basic because of the fact that it is going to become such a mass market category that people are going to turn to that because why wouldn't they? If it tastes just as good and it's actually still better for you, then like I think that in five years from now, you're, you're going to see a lot of these, you know, red dye number nine products kind of start to change, to shift, to change their ingredients. And for you to invest, I mean, we talked a little bit about does a company um, have to be online or, or only in retail? I guess in order for a company for you to, to look at, it has to work at retail. Is that right? Yes. Those were, that's where our relationships are. That's our differentiator. And again, most people are going to the grocery store. If we think about excluding the coasts and we target the rest of the country, People go to the grocery store. Um, they drive, they walk, whatever it may be. And so that's that's where we want these products. We want people to have access to all of these products. Well, yeah, and we just live in such, like, we're tactile beings. Like, we need to be able to touch and feel the fruit that we're going to buy. Or, like, it's never going to go away. You know, we're, like, we believe it's very important for our brands to have a D2C presence as an additional omni-channel approach to how they're selling and they can control the price point and the margins and all of that. But at the same time, you have to be able to get it, like you have to ha- be able to have it be available at a retail store for browsing, for, for discovery, but also for the fact that people want to see their food. <laughs> so it's funny because I've had on um, Ernesto Schmidt, who's one of the founders of The Craftery, and he said... Target, Walmart, they're being very aggressive in terms of online brands coming into their stores. And he wrote a piece that we kind of talked through about where he said that he thinks that brands are entering retail way too early, that they should stay online a lot later than they do. Obviously, I know this is kind of like a 
macro, you know, this is not obviously like, like a catch-all. But when you're kind of advising and seeing brands, when do you think it makes sense to enter retail if they did, in fact, start, start online? They have to be able to answer to the supply. If they can fulfill supply, they can fulfill the purchase orders and continue to fulfill the repeat purchase orders and the pallets, then they're able to enter into mass or enter into grocery. And our approach is really, it's a region by region or store by store. It's not a one day you're going to be in 5,000 stores. It's what are you able to do today and let's grow with you and let's take on what you're able to accomplish today. Yeah. And I think it's also looking at where their customer is. So if they're, that's a great thing about D2C though, is like you can see who your customer is, where you're selling it. And so if your customer is buying from all over the country, then you're probably ready to go into retail because you have a pretty big footprint. If your customer is buying solely on the coast, then maybe you could go into retail, but you should start with smaller boutiques that are really just specific to, you know, LA and New York. No, that makes sense. I mean, it reminds me when I when I spoke to uh, Clayton Christopher about how he said that you know when he's analyzing brands, it's he much prefers smaller territory, high velocities rather than brands that want to just expand or might be in in five thousand stores or a lot, a lot of stores, and but maybe their velocities just aren't as good. And also to his point, he talked about how he had one brand that went into Target and then totally like a mismanaged Target. Like a hundred percent. I think to your point, Kara, just being able to make sure that you can actually fulfill all the orders when you actually do have a retailer breathing down your neck. And so, how also do you think about like the fund, like the overall fundraising landscape for for early, better for you food and beverage brands? Do you think that there's you know because we we talk a lot on this show about especially in like in like technology, for example, where there's so much money. In tech, there's so much. Some of these rounds are just crazy. But I'm always kind of curious. And like, better for you, food and bev. Do you think that there still is a lack of VCs that are investing, maybe at the stage that you're focused on, or do you think that it actually there's a lot of competition? I think at our stage, there's not a lot of competition. We but we have found it to actually be very collaborative. Which when we've talked with other people, they find that to be startling. What? You're not fighting for a spot on the cap table? And we're like, no, they want us to join. We're sharing deal flow. And yeah. it's allowed us to create this incredible community and network, um, both from an investor base as well as a founder base. But there is capital that's missing, especially in the early stage, especially for diverse founders, whether they're women or biopic. And it just, it there needs to be more cash in this space. I mean, I think that too, there's like a, like the seed stage brands are, so you'll have like pre-seed or pre-revenue where a brand is small, taking in smaller angel checks and, you know, kind of trying to grow gradually, be very strategic about it. And then you have these seed stage brands that are doing, you know, a million plus in revenue and are really trying to get to that next level, but they don't want institutional capital. They want more than just angels. And so it's figuring out how much they should raise. Should they be going crowd, like, you know, crowdfunding through Republic or WeFunder, or do they just need to be taking in checks and how to really approach it? And I think that it's really been a founder's market for the last couple of years. I mean, some of the valuations that we've seen of brands that are doing 70K in revenue and declaring themselves a $10 million value company, which you'd be surprised. There's, more There's than a lot one. of those. It's really been a founder's market because these brands drive these valuations based on what they're seeing in the space of other competitors. 
But the first to movers can be the ones that are value themselves that highly. Once you're in a crowded market space, you know, it's, it's kind of hard. So I, I think what's happening is that these brands are overvaluing themselves. And then when they raise their next round, it needs to be a down round or they just can't really meet the, the, the standard that they're trying to set. That is actually interesting because as you say, and it also doesn't really make sense because on the supply and demand side, like supply capital demand brands, like it seems like there's like lack of supply um, in terms of capital for in terms of food and beverage. But these brands can still actually demand pretty high prices for some of their brands, which doesn't really make a ton of sense if there's like lack of supply, right? In the last two years, there really hasn't been a lack of supply. There's been a lot of money people have been wanting to put to work in in these brands and there's but now the issue is that there's just so many brands everybody is creating their own small better for you brand at this point and so it's it's if there's so many brands and everybody's diversifying which ones they're investing in none of them really have the chance to grow appropriately so i understand you have a fund of 2 million currently what is kind of the future of simple food the goal is to keep investing, to grow what we've currently built. We've already been able to establish that while we started our fund as a pre-seed and seed structured fund, we're actually looking more into bridge and series A, which has been really exciting for us. The exposure to other investors, the exposure to other brands and founders in the later stage, it's it's exciting for us. It's exciting for our retail partners as well. So to be able to continue to invest in that capacity in this with this new strategy in mind is is how we see things moving yeah, forward. And and to I mean, right now we're kind of acting as a micro VC angel. We're really entering in, you know, in an, in our next fundraise to really being a true VC, writing larger checks than what we were writing before, getting more meaning people meaningful pieces of the pie, but also really being able to help a lot of brands that you'd assume would already in grocery get into grocery. What is one thing that you would change about venture capital? I think the diversity. I um, agree with that. You know, I think that if you have the same type of people, I, I can't remember I was listening to like a, a daily interview or something like this, but it was saying how if you're the same type of people investing into the same type of people, you're never going to see different types of products and different perspectives and other groups are not going to really get the chance to succeed. I mean, even being female fund managers, people look at us as such a minority in this in this area and LPs want to put money towards because it's giving women a chance to really be at the forefront of business in a lot of ways that wasn't in the past. So I think as VC continues to evolve, diversifying is really, really important. I think Greer said it beautifully. And that's a lot of what we pay attention to. A lot of what we look at and making sure that we have more female founders that we're investing in than male. That's one of the most important things to us as female fund managers. And I think too, like we say time and time again, but like the actual decision makers um, in households um, typically are females. And so it makes sense that we should, I mean, obviously we should be um, investing in more diverse brands, but also it makes more sense too to to invest in obviously a lot more female-led businesses um, as well in the eyes of consumer if the actual decision maker is predominantly a female. What's one book that inspired each of you personally and each of you professionally? So personally, this is a very uh, hippie answer because I <laughs> went to school in Vermont and I'm, you know, it's my heart. But um, so the Celestine prophecy, I'm not, I can't actually remember who wrote it right now. I should look that up. But um, for the longest time, I thought it was a true story. It's not. 
Um, but it's basically about a man who goes to Brazil and finds this book that is really talking about how everything that you meet, everything is connected. So there's no coincidences. It's all about synchronicity. And after reading that, it really made me think about every relationship I have and the reason behind it and just every interaction and what I'm trying to learn and take from it and every experience. So it really is something that has kind of just shaped the way that I perceive um, my relationships and just my experiences. And then professionally, it's Failing Upward by Ben Chapman. I look at my career as I really started in consulting and strategic advisory. I went into an experience design agency and everything has really led me to this point, given the relationships that I grew along the way and the skill set that I took. And I don't think I would have come to doing this fund had I not left my job or not done as well as I wanted to and kind of felt like I was a stagnant there and everything kind of changed and happened for the reasons that it did. So for me personally, uh, the book is Untamed by Glennon Doyle. I just constantly say to myself, we can do hard things. I can do hard things, which is what now she has a podcast about doing hard things. And I hear her voice in me just guiding that. I think that both in starting this business and in getting through my first, you know, 30 plus years of life, it's always been going up against those hard things and being able to come out on top. Even if there's failure involved, those failures are the most important to recognize and having that be part of the story. And I've just, I've loved it. It, it just gave me such comfort in knowing being who I am. And, and I think Glennon is the coolest woman alive. And then professionally, uh, Tools of Titans by Jim Ferris, which someone, one of my close friends gave to me actually when Greer and I were starting our business. And I, you know, it starts with a forward by Arnold Schwarzenegger. And it's just what his, all the things about how you start. And again, the failures and how they lead to your successes and the importance of acknowledging all of that. And even the minutia and how those little things, you might not think anything of them, the importance and what they give to the bigger picture. It's all so valuable. And then just being able to hear from these, these titans of success and what it means across so many different industries, it's really inspiring. I just I pick and pick up that book constantly. I love it so much. No, that's amazing. Um, all these book racks. I don't think anyone on the show has mentioned any of these. So really, so you you both are very original. Yeah, you both are very original. So really excited to add that's, them all. That's about us. So, we think right. outside the box. We are Constantly. not typical VCs in any way. <laughs> and I think that like my when you were talking, Kara, about Untamed and about we can do hard things and have that voice in your head. For me, that's I don't know if you've read The War of Art, but for me, that's like. That's for me. Um, talks a lot about. I think I actually read it in, in high, high school. school. Oh, yeah. I think so. Cool. cool. Yeah. Stephen Pressfield talks a lot about the resistance and battling the resistance, and like I did, that's like I guess like my like driving board too. So very very cool. My last question for you both is: What's one piece of advice that you both have for founders? I would just going off of everything we just talked about. Failure is not the end at all. I think you know I heard someone say that, and I was just like, yeah, failure is as important as success. It all gives way to success and maybe flipping how you're viewing things, not looking at it as a failure, but where do you go from here? I think also having passion, passion behind everything that you're doing, because if you live and breathe your company, that's going to come through when you talk about your company. Mm -hmm. Like I, as Kara said, I fall in love with every single founder that we talk to and I like (laughs) immediately am obsessed with the product. It's because I feed off of their energy. I believe what they're preaching to me and that's really a what's important. And, you know, it was the same thing with us with Simple Food Ventures. Like we live and breathe this and we think what we're doing is 
incredibly awesome and we love working every day and I think that's a huge important part to your to being a successful founder and being excited and I think that goes hand in hand with passion so I guess that's adding a third thing but um, we get up every day and we're I don't know, call us whatever you want, but truly excited about the people we get to speak to and hearing everything and the listening. It's just amazing how it all comes together. Yeah, I think that enthusiasm can just be infectious. I love these. These are these are great. Well, Greer and Kara, this has been so much fun having you both on. Thanks again for taking the time. Thank you. This is great. And there you have it. It was awesome chatting with Greer and Kara. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.